Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Should we bring in John Stolfers, Oppenheimer Asset Management Chief Investment Strategist. He joins us here in New York. Good morning to you, John. Good morning. Good to be here. Do you tell your clients a nice, beautiful story of optimism and hope about a V-shaped recovery in the global economy this year? Well, you know, I actually am, am expecting a V-shaped recovery. We've had a V-shaped recovery uh, in in uh, in 09. We had uh, a, a V-shaped recovery most recently out of that fourth quarter of 2018. There's a remarkable resilience that uh, is built into the global economy as a result of low interest rates, highly sensitive uh, monetary policy, not only by the U.S. Uh, uh, Fed, but by central banks around the world, combined with counterinflationary trends in globalization and technology that are very much intact and make, it, make, make the, uh, the landscape uh, much more resilient. Let's draw a distinction between a V-shaped recovery in markets, shall we, and a V-shaped recovery in the economy. Oh, okay. I don't see much of a V-shaped recovery in the economy in places like Europe. We've seen some very, very premature signs of stabilization maybe in China as well, but nothing like a V-shaped recovery, John. I do stand corrected on that. It must be that it's so early in the morning. I think the markets do a V-shaped recovery here, but I I do think that the, the economic impact will actually be much less because I think the rest of the world is going to begin to get the uh, what's been set by both the U.S. and China, which is called fiscal stimulus. Okay. If this is a V-shaped recovery in markets, the V is the smallest V I've ever seen in my entire life. And this does raise a question for me. It never really V'd downward. It's just V'ing upward. And it seems like people are pricing in that there will be no effect. How big is the potential downside if the economic bleed through, to John's point, to 2Q, 3Q is actually more than people had expected? Yeah, well, I, I think that would, we'll have to wait and see. But, I, I, you know, it could be it, it would be a double digit uh, a decline that we could see, but that that exists essentially from any catalyst that can occur that is systemic in nature. So, but we just don't see that. I, I remember traveling to China. Uh, my first trip to China was a high-level trip in in o in o four. It was March of o four. I just left one big bank in in uh, uh, in the U S. for another big bank in in, in the U S. And and in, uh, in, uh, I left in September of two thousand and three. Well, well, it's it's a, it, my, my blue lights off here. Excuse me. Is this about the Mandarin bar in Hong Kong? Is no, that where no, this no, is no, at? No. I thought he was going to tell us about his whole contract <laughs> no, no, that no, changed no, no, in, in early two thousand four. I'll never forget. They get as soon as I arrived at the new bank, they said to me, "Look, we want you to go to China." And I kept postponing it by weeks because I, I was looking at SARS and I thought, "My gosh, I've just left one good job for another, and they're going to kill me." And, but I'm so glad that I went in March of 04. It, it, it changed my vision of the world once I yeah. saw what was happening in China. And on, on yeah. it, it visits there afterward, it, it continues. It, it, it's a right. juggernaut. The, the gloom crew loves ratios. And one of the charts that struck me this weekend was energy as compared to technology. OMG, it's 1999. John Stolfus, is it 1999? 
Uh, I, I don't think so. I don't think it's 1999. I think this. I think since uh, uh, 2009, uh, we have we've seen different forces in effect in the global economy and within the within the global yeah. market. So it's you're saying this time is different. What is different about Amazon, Apple, and the other 47 stocks that have captured all the bid, all the wall of money coming in? What's different this time? I, I'd say one of them is is, is profitability. Uh, cash flow management, business premise, ability to execute, and uh, the market uh, at, at uh, right. recognition, both both within the business community and and in the consumer. Can you be long them? I mean, can you be long all these glory names, Microsoft and the rest of them? Uh, we would we would say so, and and we are long some of not all of them, but uh, but a good number of those glory names, as, as you so well put it. Apple is the poster child for the moment, isn't it? We've talked about it on this program so much over the last week. With regards to what is happening in China, it is heavily exposed to the demand side story, softening Chinese growth the risk around that it's heavily exposed to the supply side story the threat of disruptions to supply chains and yet still it's a couple of dollars from all-time highs John and this is what I've been grappling with for weeks now quite clearly the risks around the outlook have shifted tilted to the downside you can debate the degree to which that has happened but that's happened that's just a fact the price of the story hasn't changed why not well, I, I think it's it's that what what, what the the market has seen of, uh, over the last course of the last few years is every time Apple's future looks dark, it, it surprises to the upside and shows resilience. I mean, uh, just with the with the uh, the the Apple iPhone 11, uh, when when the numbers looked better than than anybody had originally expected about a year later, right? Uh, it, we'd have to think that. I, th I think the other side of it is, you know, when it comes to Apple, is just if, if we, I, I bet you if we all bring our Apple, our, our, our smartphones out of our pockets, I'm willing to bet you that you most You want to know what's on my smartphone out of my pocket? Is that an Apple? It's not appropriate. You don't want to know. It's not Absolutely not. For I will say, while you're pulling it up, while you're pulling up whatever you're going to pull up that will become some sort of interesting uh, conversation later, I do think that there is a question to, to the point of demand uh, with respect to Apple and how much a slowdown in a Chinese economy bleeds into global companies in a way that's not getting priced in. And I think about this at a time when we are looking at the potential for increasing bad loans on Chinese banks, books that will potentially quadruple or quintuple, depending on how slow the economy goes, and this sort of diverts some of the energy away from the PBOC in terms of ability to stimulate the economy. How significantly will it hit the consumer in China? I, I think that that is, is the real question, but it should be of some significance without a doubt. But in terms of the buyer of the iPhone, which is a relative luxury product in China based on per capita income, I think it might have a greater negative effect on Huawei than it would on Apple, for example. You know, in terms of smartphone sales uh, uh, as a consumer product, because uh, the, the Apple iPhone is uh, it, it, it's a, it, it's a luxury item in, in, in China. If you can, it's a status symbol. Yeah. It is a global pick. John, thank you. John, nice to see you, John. With optimism, he's 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 very V-shaped. Yeah, incredibly. What did you find on your phone? With Oppenheimer. We would normally do an interview with one of our best labor economists in America, someone that Republicans and Democrats are forced to read. He is Jared Bernstein, senior fellow of the Center on Budget and Policy uh, Priorities, and uh, as well the former chief economist and advisor to 
Mr. Biden, but Jared, this time I've got to rip it up and talk about Joe Biden and the struggle he's having. Can you explain, Jared Bernstein, why Vice President Biden cannot get traction with the electorate on what I'll call moderate Democratic Party economics? Well, it's a tough question. Uh, there's a lot of competition out there, including uh, the young uh, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. Uh, but in fact, uh, I think part of what's happening is just the nature, and I would argue the very unfortunate nature of the primary uh, system for Democrats, uh, which start in some very unrepresentative places. Uh, the, pre- the vice president uh, has South Carolina to come and, and Super Tuesday, and uh, he's uh, as he himself would tell you, he's a fighter who's uh, maybe down but far from out. So if it's about wage growth, do you get a sense that a large swath of Republican and Democrat America is just fed up with lousy wage growth? And there's a, and I'm using this from Gordon Wood at Brown University, there's a new radicalism out there that doesn't allow for people like Vice President Biden to place? You know, I actually have a somewhat different view, starting with the economics, which is that wage growth has actually been okay on average, a little better than okay. I mean, we have productivity growth that's not exactly gangbusters, so your, your wage growth isn't going to be maybe what it was. But in fact, at the bottom end of the wage scale, very low unemployment has helped put a, put a push up wage growth. What upsets people a lot and makes them far less insecure about the economy than those wage trends would suggest is the difference between what they earn and what they need to make ends meet. And here's where Biden and the other Democrats come in, because they want to preserve and expand the kind of safety net programs that help close the gap between what people earn and what they need, whereas the Republicans and Trump really do want to tear that away. By the way, you're going to see a lot of that today in the president's budget, which comes out later. Jared, you're making some really good points here, and I'm listening to you, and the story you're telling is the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. And at the moment, the battle of the last couple of weeks is just a lot of Democrats trying to f- find small, maybe irrelevant differences between themselves. How does the vice president get himself back on track so he's the man to take on the president of the United States? Oh, yeah, great question, but very simple answer. If, you're, if your uh, theory of the case is that you're electable, you've got to start winning. Uh, so it's just that simple. Really? Uh, and yeah, it's that simple. And so uh, you know, the, the vice president has some uh, stronger venues coming up for him. And that's, you know, that's going to be make or break. Jared, how important is it for Joe Biden to have an actual message uh, that comes out there like a health care for all or some of these other proposals that are viewed as more radical, but are at least proposals that you can sink your teeth into? I mean, so far, what's Joe Biden's kind of claim to fame with respect to proposals? Well, first of all, as I said, the theory of the case is a return to normalcy, and I'm the guy who can who can beat the uh, the incumbent president, which is obviously the most important argument for uh, Democrats. So once you get away from that, then I, then I think your initial point is uh, uh, correct and and misunderstood, which is that all Democrats are really pointing in the same direction. It's a matter of how fast you're going to get there. Uh, whether you're talking about Biden or Klobuchar or Buttigieg. They're all much more incremental in getting to universal coverage, for example, than are Warren and Sanders. But that's more of a diagnosis of just how ready you think the system is to jump from where we are to where you want to get, or whether you think you have to get there more gradually. 
Jared, from the outside looking in, it looks like Mayor Pete's doing a great job of positioning himself to take on the president and win over some Republican voters. Just over the weekend, he's talking about the budget deficit. I did not think I'd hear this from this side of the aisle. He said it's not fashionable in progressive circles, but it's something that he thinks we should be focusing on. What's the response to that from the Biden team, Jared? What's your response to a focus on the budget deficit from Mayor Pete well, Buttigieg? Yeah, so I'm not on the Biden team. Let me be very clear about that. And, and I don't know what their response will be. Um, you know, the Buttigieg is right when he says that's not fashionable in progressive circles, but it's also far less fashionable in economic circles. I mean, it's widely recognized that the old theory that budget deficits crowd out private borrowing and push up interest rates is demonstrably wrong because we have large budget deficits and very low interest rates, not just here, but around the world. So I think that perhaps Buttigieg there is just trying to carve out a different lane for himself and complain about our fiscal imbalances, which are severe. Jared Bernstein with us, uh, with the Center and Budget and Policy Administration. Thrilled he could join us this morning. Jared, let me channel your inner LBJ, which is long ago and far away. You took an activist, what I'll call investment tax credit approach to business investment. Can the Democrats outscoop Jackson, scoop Jackson and get on board some business initiatives to seize the high ground there? You know, it's a good question, and, and uh, probably the way in for the Democrats is twofold. One is broadly on infrastructure. Um, American business really wants there to be a deep investment in public infrastructure, because guess what? They're the ones who have to drive over the bridges and roads and airports. Uh, and secondly, on uh, green investment, I think there is a, a, a real opening for Democrats uh, to uh, suggest that growth can be motivated by investment in uh, uh, in, in, okay, in great. climate but mitigation. You sound like you're in Davos. We're not. Are we in Davos, John, this morning? <laughs> I mean, you know. I wish. Do we have decent coffee? Yes, we do. It must not be Davos. Um, <laughs> but Jared, that's great. But how do you affect that in Washington? I asked that a Secretary Chow, the head of transportation, and you know, I get the Republican line. Give me not the Democratic line. Give me the Bernstein line. How do you affect infrastructure or green across both parties? Uh, you have to have, I mean, I hate to say it because it sounds so political, and I know it is political, but I, I think, I, you know, this is my only answer. But you just have to have a very different administration. And by the way, I'm not saying it has to be a D or an R, but the Trump administration just never cared a whit about infrastructure investment. Their plans are a couple sentences long, mostly asterisks, referring to a bunch of fantastical plans that nobody's ever seen or written down. So what you need is, is a, just a different group of people who are not driven by a chaotic minute-to-minute you know, -minute news cycle and are actually serious about public investment. There are a lot of Republicans in that camp. I've talked to them. They just don't have any power. Yeah. Jared, we're sort of all circling at, at a similar kind of question here, which is what's the Democratic message to counter President Trump's, which is the economy is very strong. We seem to be chugging forward. He's come through with trade negotiations. He's going to go forward with respect to, to infrastructure spending, he says. And the Democrats are caught in a circular firing squad. I mean, what do you say to that? There's no real message that's emerging other than, hey, we'll go back to something that's going to be less sensational when it comes to a news cycle. Well, that's the huge challenge that you're po posing. And, and in fact, uh, there's no question that the economy is going to be a significant tailwind for Trump. I mean, for, for a lot of the Democrats, uh, when it comes to the economy and, and the electorate, it's highlighting the fact to it the extent to which it just hasn't reached a lot of people in a lot of places. I mentioned earlier that people are well more insecure about their paychecks yeah. and how far they go than you'd expect given a 3.6% a a unemployment rate.
Jared, thank you so much. Just brilliant. Jared Bernstein with us there uh, with some careful questions on the Democrats and, of course, his former support of Vice President uh, Biden. He is with the Center for Budget and Policy uh, Priorities. Kit Jukes, the Sostay General, Arsenal supporter, also FX strategist, calling us out of London. He joins us on the phone. Kit, great to catch up with you. Your take this morning, and then we'll turn to emerging markets. The US is still slowing too slowly for FX to care. What did you mean by that, Kit? Uh, well, when if I had a campaign, I'd, I'd sort of lead people down. It's that if if we look at the, the monthly change in non-farm payrolls and this kind of stuff we were looking on Friday, they're okay. You know that they, they they were beats or they were decent or they were solid, but the year-over-year percentage change has been on a deceleration trend. And perhaps more importantly, the year-over-year percentage change in aggregate hours worked is now you know is is under one percent. So, um, you know the the impression I get from that and, and from plenty of other indicators is that. There's a very gradual deceleration in, in U.S. growth at this point in the cycle. I have fears that with the Fed having less ammunition now and with fiscal policy pretty much on hold till after the election, there's not much to kind of, you know, prevent that slowing further. But the consensus on U.S. growth doesn't blink, doesn't budge. Um, you know, 2%-ish for most people, you know, it's just going to continue. That's kind of in the bag. So, um, and until they pay attention, until the, 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 the slowdown in, in the U.S. economy, you know, shows signs of, of picking up some momentum, it's just a non-factor in markets. And I might as well stare at it in the corner and talk to myself about it. It's well, in the meantime, though, Kit, what we see is the dollar that's stronger. We're down three figures on euro dollar since the start of the year. Quite clearly, we're pushing something through this market. Uh, we're pushing continued growth concerns about Europe. There are continued concerns about Germany. And remember, we're going to get some more German GDP numbers. At the end of the week, we've got Eurozone industrial production numbers. All of those have looked very, very, um, pretty bleak recently. Uh, the ECB has effectively no ammunition. The Germans have real, no real um, enthusiasm for easing fiscal policy. And, uh, and when I talk to German corporate clients, they are long cash and short on um, great investment plans to go out and spend it. It's not. It's not an encouraging story. Uh, Kitchuks over in Asia. What do you glean from what the litmus paper of foreign exchange says about this viral crisis? I'm looking at Indonesia currency versus Chinese currency, and it's red zone, green zone. You know, it's back and forth, and and all that. Right now, it's weak Indonesia, stronger China. But what do you make of what you observe in FX about this viral crisis? Um, look, I think that, that you have that you have concerns, but the Chinese aren't going to be letting the currency just for now play a part in that. I think that's pretty important. So, um, you know, we, we were we were well in time. If you think of the fourth quarter, the Thai baht was one of the strongest performing currencies, gaining safe haven status. Until at the beginning of this year, people refocused and said, "Hang on a second, they they may have shifted to a big current account surplus. They may have shifted to very inflation fighting." central bank, you know, all the things that, that make a, a strong currency, but um, they're also still dependent on tourism and they have a border with China and, you know, that, that, that maybe we should be concerned about that as well. And, that, and it's weakened quite a lot. So I think, the, you know, the, the, the market does does worry about, about the impact on growth from the virus in individual countries. What And I think it worries about growth globally for emerging market currencies overall and we wouldn't have the Australian dollar all the way down here if it wasn't for the virus. But but um, it says nothing to how worried we would be if the Chinese let the 
let, let their currency take the strain of, uh, uh, of of the weakness that they have in their economy. That's, that's the, the you know dollar yuan. I, I come in in the morning and it's seven plus or minus a marginal amount every day. I'm trying to understand the reaction of the dollar and the dollar, how much it will strengthen as this virus continues to spread before it gets under control. And this plays into the bond market call here. Uh, and JP Morgan out this morning saying that the bond market in the United States is looking overbought with treasuries, uh, treasury yields falling near cycle lows, even in the context of the coronavirus, given the fact that the economy is improving. And I'm wondering, do you agree? Um. Yes. No, I think that the bond market is, is, is looking at a global economy where, say, if the U.S. economy is slowing slowly without significant inflationary pressure coming through, I don't think treasuries are going to lose their bid. The, the, the Fed is, is on hold until it eases. It's not on hold until it tightens anytime soon. Yeah given this pattern. Yeah. Uh, the, the Chinese bond market's on a, on a tear this year, um, playing catch-up for, for being yeah. range-bound last year. Uh, and European bond yields are just anchored to the floor. So, so I think bond investors are still, are still out there looking. It's not, um, it's not the bond market that I think the US, I don't think, can damage yeah. it. But I do think that where that feeds through is emerging markets have been holding up to a degree in, in, because of low yields and low right, rates. Right, right. And, and two things could hurt, higher yields or weaker growth, because in the end, weaker growth yeah. usually wins that fight. Well, we've seen this uh, in the last 48 hours of trading. Kitschuk, thank you so much. Masakjin as well. I want to make this clear to, to global Bloomberg surveillance, all of you listening, Lisa, I just think I'm completely skewed on retail because of all the empty stores when I walk or drive around New York City. Yeah, there has been this I, huge I transformation uh, with uh, New York City is its own microcosm, yeah. right? With the whole leasing rates and the fact that a lot of owners of buildings can actually write it off as yeah. a tax loss if they don't end up having somebody in there rather than lower the rates. That said, there is a right. shift from brick and mortar. And amid that shift, there's so much noise that you're going to have a lot of people coming out and saying the retail numbers are noisy if they're not really good. And that's sort of my question is how reliable are some of these data points going to actually be? Why don't you ask it to Sarah House of Wells Fargo because she's informed on the emptiness of retail. Sarah House, Wells Fargo Security, senior economist. How much are people watching? How closely the retail number, given the fact that the consumer has been the main driver of the U.S. economy, Sarah? I think it's going to be a very key point to watch this week and in the first quarter in general, just given that we did have somewhat softer spending to end the fourth quarter. But when we look ahead to, to the current quarter there, we are seeing that consumers are going to, again, be probably one of the stronger areas, just given some of the production issues that we're seeing um, with things like Boeing and the potential supply disruptions. And so I think, you know, it, the, the focus on the consumer, we're certainly going to keep that um, here in, in Q1. So the consumer accounts for, I believe, about 70 percent of the U.S. economy. That's up from 40 percent uh, decades ago. And a lot of people are saying that this has been the stalwart of the economic cycle. How much longer can that overcome? the weakness that we're seeing in the industrials elsewhere, especially in light of what we're seeing with the spread of the coronavirus? Well, I think it can for, for a good bit here, in part because if you look at what's happening with real income growth, 
So that's still growing north of, of 2%. So even if we get somewhat of a downshift here, I think given that, you know, as you say, about 70% of the economy is, uh, you know, fundamentally still able to grow at 2%, never mind the fact that the savings rate is about twice as high as, as what we saw in the last cycle and, and households generally don't have um, nearly as much debt as they have in, in prior expansions. I mean, this can go on for, for a good bit, but of course, if we get a much bigger hit to the manufacturing and industrial side of the economy as yeah. potentially these coronavirus issues um, compound, then, um, then then the situation gets tougher and you're looking at potentially a, a sub 2% GDP number this year. I mean, Sarah, you lead your note with Michael McKee's favorite survey, which is the JOLTS survey. I think a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with that. Tell us about job openings and labor turnover surveys. Why are they of value and what do they say right now? Well, they're they're great value in terms of looking at the the early de- early signs of, of how demand for labor is changing, and I think the Jolt survey has, in many ways, been one of the weaker data points for the labor market, where you have openings down at, at roughly a 20-month low, and so we are seeing signs that as the economy has slowed over the past year, demand for labor has downshifted. Now you're still seeing companies hold on to those workers, evidenced by the fact that jobless claims are, are essentially moving sideways. But it does point to a downshift in in hiring in the coming months, which will likely translate into a downshift in in income growth as well. Sarah, as we talk about the economic data coming out, President Trump came out with a $4.8 trillion budget. And one sort of aspect of this among the cuts that he had in place was a deepening of the deficit. Will that matter at all going forward for the economy? Because right now it seems like people have thrown the playbook out the window saying that deficits kind of don't matter anymore in terms of jacking up taxes and jacking up interest rates. Yeah, apparently they, they don't matter until the, the political winds shift and, and they do again, or, or potentially the financial market winds shift as as well. So I think while it doesn't seem like there's been much concern about it from Washington lately, or in many ways in concerns in financial markets where, you know, if you look at where, where U.S. rates are, clearly no trouble financing that that debt right now, but, you know, things, things can change. So you could end up getting uh, more sovereign net issuance out of other parts of, of the world. Uh, and so, um, you know, to, is, is this, you know, can, can we do this as far as the eye can see? Probably not. And of course, there's going to be offsets in terms of what we're spending in terms of those those interest outlays, which are going to limit um, perhaps how we can be be spending some of that money towards towards more productive uses and, and raising productivity where you can get a higher run rate of, of GDP. Sarah, let's talk about the prospect of a higher run rate for GDP. The assumptions coming from the White House at the moment in its annual budget proposal, the White House proposal for fiscal 2021, looking for GDP growth of 3.1% in the fourth quarter of this year, followed by a 3% expansion in 2021. Can we really get back to that elusive three-handle, Sarah? I think uh, it, it does remain fairly, fairly elusive when you just look at what are the the under underlying fundamentals. So, um, productivity is of course a little bit of a wild card. We do have a lot of great technology coming on online, but in terms of um, whether we can get sort of that broad commercial commercialization of it, like we saw with uh, you know personal computers in, in the mid mid to late 90s finally coming on board, remains a big question mark. And but what we do have a lot more clarity on is the labor supply. 
And, you know, if you look at what's happening in terms of your, your prime age workers, um, you're, you're six, basically they're, they're growing about a quarter of a percent a, a year yeah. coming up here. And so, you know, that, that says you need right. a massive rebound in, in participation. Well, we've already gotten a, a nice recovery there. How much, how much higher can this go? Um, I think that's, that's still a big question mark hanging over, uh, hanging over the labor supply and therefore potential growth. I, I'm afraid to ask. How what, what age is a prime age worker? Well, we'll just use the BLS's definition and That's safe. stick with tw- twenty five to fifty four. So twenty five to fifty. You're still in your yeah. prime, so <laughs> just at the upper end. John Sylvia would have answered this, uh, Sarah with Morgan. He said, "Tom, you'd be prime." I love, I love that Sarah just <laughs> said, "I'm going to go to an official definition according to the BLS." Yeah, she finessed that well. Trying she to stay good, out of trouble. Good Sylvia today. points this morning. <laughs> Sarah, great to catch up with you. We've got to leave it there. Sarah House there. Sarah, thank you so much, particularly on Jules. Security Senior Economist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.